The Cultural Enterprises podcast is part of our online academy. Structured courses and learning resources created by industry experts, which encourage flexible learning. So you can watch at your own pace, in your own time, on multiple devices, in a location to suit you. To see how we can help you and your team, please visit culturalenterprises.org.uk forward slash academy. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Series 2 of the Cultural Enterprises podcast. I am Gabriella Gandolfini and in each episode I'll be talking to a top leader in the arts world. Find out how they got to where they are, what inspires them and what advice they have for the next generation of cultural leaders. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to today's guest, Bernard Donahue. And this man has more job titles than anyone I have ever met one of them being the Mayor of London's Ambassador for Cultural Tourism, a role he started, I think, nearly three years ago. And I remember at the time I saw it online and I mailed Bernard to say congratulations. And I still remember the feeling of thinking there's literally no one better suited for this role than Bernard. He's a strategist, a policy analyst, someone with over 20 years of board experience. But for me personally, Bernard is primarily a first class influencer in this country. So I'm so happy to be talking to you today. Welcome, Bernard. Thank you very much. I barely recognise that description of me, so thank you. <laughs> so, Bernard, just to get started, I've mentioned that you have more job titles than anyone I've ever met. Could you give us a quick introduction to you as Bernard and all the different hats that you wear? Yes, thank you very much. My main job, my job is that I'm the director of the Association of Leading Visitor Attractions. So all of those museums, galleries, cathedrals, heritage sites, gardens, zoos, safari parks, each of which get more than a million visitors per year. Uh, and in that role, I'm, I'm principally a, a lobbyist, an advocate for them to governments, to the media, to business, but also bring them all together to share insights and trends and good practice and occasionally bad practice. That's so much more interesting. And then I've got a number of roles, which include being chair of the London Theatre Festival, Lyft, uh, and being a trustee of uh, the People's History Museum up in Manchester and on the board of St Paul's Cathedral as well. Let's go back to the very beginning so we can understand your journey here today. If we think back to you as a child or a teenager, what is it that you wanted to do back then? Have you ever imagined that you would be doing what you do today? Yes and no. I was one of those kids who was taken along by my parents to National Trust properties and English heritage sites and museums from a pretty early age. So the first museum that I went to would have been the Natural History Museum at Shring in Hertfordshire, which is a mad, very Victorian, very Rothschild place full of literally stuffed animals, everything from uh, stuffed butterflies through to a dodo. The first National Trust property I went to was uh, Wadsden Manor in Buckinghamshire, which is amazing. It's a, a French Loire chateau in the middle of the Vale of Aylesbury. And then the big stately home I first went to was Blenheim Palace in Oxfordshire. And I remember really clearly the guide telling me about the rent that the the uh, Duke of Marlborough paid to the monarch every year, and it was a flag. And then about three weeks later, I was at Windsor Castle and saw that flag 
in situ and the, the warder guide at Windsor Castle was telling us all about it and I put up my hand and said oh yes this is what it did. I was about nine so that two, tells me two things one I was really interested in this stuff from an early age and two I was annoying and precocious those things I think have stayed with me ever since did you attend university? What did you study? I studied politics, philosophy and economics for my undergraduate degree. And then I did international relations at the LSE. Uh, so I've always been primarily interested in, in politics and public affairs and advocacy. So immediately while I was at the LSE, I also worked part time as chair of the British Youth Council, which is the umbrella body for all youth and student organisations in the UK. Uh, and I worked part time as a researcher in the House of Commons as well. So everything that I now do advocating on behalf of the sector really comes back to a a personal passion for the sector but also my professional career which is largely as a lobbyist a communicator and an advocate. And from attending university and all your formal education what is the main life lesson you've learned from that time? Oh gosh I suppose one is that if you think that a degree will equip you with the skills and the knowledge that you need for your job that's not necessarily the case the second is actually if I answer this in a slightly different way I think I've learnt as much from my non-executive roles so being on the boards of things as I have in my actual job and so they've been a very very complementary experience of doing my paid job during the day and, and early on in my career that was largely in disability charities uh, working over at the Council of Europe in Strasbourg as a, as a speechwriter. Um, and I've learned those professional skills, but in my trustee roles, I've learned how to use those skills in a strategic manner. So I think one of the things that I've learned is uh, you can learn as much being a non-exec, being a trustee and a volunteer as you can from having a really good nine to five paid career. While we are talking about formal education, you touched on these, there are alternatives to formal education today, such as apprenticeships. And I know this is a broad question, but what are your views in general on formal education for those wanting a career in arts and culture? It depends who you are and what you want. But I certainly wouldn't say that uh, having a degree invalidates all those people who don't have a degree but have a, an enormous passion. One of the things that we do at Alva is that we look at the visitor numbers every year and we try and work out who's done well and why, i.e. who's grown their visitor numbers impressively and in particular which audience segments and one of the things that I've learned is that over the last eight or nine years there are about four characteristics of really impressive sustainably growing visitor attractions and one of them is staff not stuff now this is you know an anathema to curators but what I mean by that is that people initially come to your visitor attraction because of what you've got your collections, your uh, sites, your stories, but they'll come back because of who you employ. They'll come back because of how they felt they were treated. And so I'm a huge advocate of recognizing the importance of front of house staff. These are the people who literally make the difference between a good visitor experience and an excellent one. These are the people who are more likely to guarantee a return visit than anything else that you do in your visitor attraction, no matter how big or small you are. 
So I suppose that's a really long-winded way of saying, actually, it's your personal skills, your passion, your enthusiasm, and the authenticity of you that you bring to your job that is often so much more important than any letters after your name. You have been a researcher for the Council of Europe, public affairs manager for SENSE, a policy manager for National AIDS Trust, head of government and public affairs for Visit Britain, so many different jobs that you've had along the years. From everything you've done before, all the previous roles, every, everything you've been through and you've learned until you landed on your current roles today, could you share with us a few pieces of personal learning, perhaps a few things that have changed your direction of travel, something that changed the way you approach situations? The first is that that career trajectory sounds planned and thought out, and it isn't. And I'd be sceptical and nervous of anyone who has got a well-thought-out career trajectory, because you have to embrace the opportunity and the possibility of spontaneity and mad things happening. And be prepared to go with them. So I've had at least a, three or four jobs that I hadn't ever thought of that I didn't plan to do and they just came about out of pure circumstance. So one is allow yourself to be, uh, allow your career path to be taken in a completely different direction and embrace it. The second I suppose is think for yourself but act for others. Try and not be influenced by prevailing wisdom or being, this is ironic for a, los, uh, for a uh, lobbyist, but, but try and think for yourself and to gather up the data that you need. But in doing so, in, in discharging that duty, think about the consequences for other people. And the third, I think is, and this is something I touched on earlier, bring your authentic self to your job. Everyone else's job is taken. It's the Oscar Wilde thing about, you know, don't try and be somebody else. They've already, they're already it. So bringing your authentic self, uh, strengths and weaknesses and, and foibles and, and powerful passions, that's the person who can most help the organisation that you're joining. So I wasn't even going to touch on this, Bernard, but interestingly, in the previous podcast we had with Julie Molloy from the National Gallery Company, we talked about how easy it is and not easy for you to be yourself at work when you are in a very high leadership role. And I asked Julie, how well do you feel you can present yourself as Julie on a scale of one to 10? So I think I'll ask that to you today as well. How much are you Bernard when you go to work on a scale from one to 10? I think I'm a, a nine or a 10. And you probably see that as well through social media too. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an out gay man. I have been since I was 17, 18. And therefore, uh, pretty much every day I have to come out again, because people will ask me questions about, you know, are you married? Who's your wife? Do you have kids? And you just have to go through the whole process of, of coming out about yourself again. But I think that's a very important thing to do to be a, a visible gay person, LGBTQ person in this sector because I know that there are lots of L younger LGBT people who are coming through the ranks who want to know that sexuality for example is not an inhibitor to career progression so I suppose that's one. Second thing is I'm also one of those people who don't 
sort of believe my own propaganda. And so you have to have a sense of humour and not be too pompous about stuff, even when you're meeting, as I do, cabinet ministers and prime ministers and treasury ministers and MPs on a daily basis. Uh, keep yourself grounded and not lose sight that the person who is trying to be powerful and eloquent and, and talking to ministers is still the person who loads up the dishwasher at the end of the day. So don't lose sight of who you are. We talked about learnings in your previous roles, but if you fast forward to today's time, we know you wear a few hats. But if we talk about Alva, as this is probably how most of the listeners to this podcast know you, there's one thing I really want to know about your work with Alva. You are incredibly present. I mean, you are Alva. You're the source of inspiration and credibility to the members and your team delivers, the members deliver. I remember going to watch, I think you were doing a key speech somewhere, a keynote speech, and I came back and I pretty much convinced the National Theatre to join Alva just because of a 10-minute presentation that you did, because right. you are this person. So me personally, I really wanted to know, what is your approach to leadership? Is this a strategy? Is this a leadership strategy you use to position yourself in, in a certain way within the organisations you work with? First of all, that's, that's really kind of you. Thank you. I suppose the, in terms of leadership skills or style, it comes back again, sorry to repeat myself, but it comes back to authenticity, that if people are not believing you are passionate about what you're saying or convinced about what you're saying, they're not going to buy it. And so you have to be as authentic and passionate as you can uh, in the things that you're doing. Secondly, I think you have to walk the talk. So of the 72 members of ALVA, I think I'm probably personally a, a personal member of about 25. It feels like money laundering because I, you know, I, I'm, I'm personally contributing to the health and, and wealth and sustainability of those organisations. Uh, so one of the things that I've been doing recently is putting out a daily tweet of things that I've bought in museum and gallery and visitor attraction gift shops. And I, th I suppose it's for two reasons. One is uh, so it allows people to see the person that I am in real life and my interests and passions. And the second thing is that I put up my money where my mouth is. Uh, and it's really important to underline that cultural enterprises and gift shops and books and all of those things that you can buy at visitor attractions are really important and they're important souvenirs of, of what you love but also they're a way of sustaining the organizations economically and if we talk about you being literally present so for example when with the alva forums you actually turn up to a lot of them how do you time manage being able to be present to so many things that you do yeah, we, we have um, about 13 different fora within Alva. So we'll have a grouping every six months of all of our HR directors or uh, fundraising or heads of education or heads of security. They're fascinating, by the way. So they meet every six months and I chair all of those meetings uh, and also present an update on what's happening in the visitor economy to each of those as well. I found them absolutely invaluable because not only do you get to meet a broad range of people across the spectrum of an organisation, I mean, literally everything from uh, security and retail through to ticketing and curatorial. But also they give me the data and insights that allow me to do my job better. So when I'm meeting ministers or talking to uh, the media, I've got a really good grasp about what the key issues are for visitor attractions right across the, the, the spectrum of activity. In terms of how do I plan it, it's one of those things that if you want something done well, you ask a busy person. And I've, I've always believed that. I've 
I've always uh, juggled lots of potentially competing but often complementary roles since I was back in university. So this for me is normal. It's, it doesn't feel like juggling conflict. You're also the chairman for WWF UK. You have been a trustee there for eight years previously. And I asked this question from Julie Molloy and I'm basically compiling answers here. What advice would you give to someone, let's say like me, wanting to become a trustee for an organization, someone experienced and established but who's never been a trustee before and wouldn't know where to start? First of all, think about what would be your ideal role in your ideal organization and then work backwards. So how would you get there? What are the skills that you think that that organization needs at governance level? Go into their websites, look at who their trustees currently are. Whenever they have recruitment drives, uh, do look at the recruitment and the job description and those kind of things. It's also probably worth actually contacting the organization itself and talking to the person who's got governance responsibility uh, and saying, I'm, I'm interested, I mean, just being really upfront and saying, I'm really interested, you know, when the next cycle of trustee vacancies come around, what would you be looking for in the next cycle? Are you looking for someone with an accountancy background or actually are you looking for someone like you who knows about audiences? So really be clear about what your ideal next role would look like. Second is be critically honest with yourself about your genuine skills and they're not necessarily the ones that you do in your current job. So are you good at uh, stakeholder management, negotiation? Are you good at marketing? Have you got insights that other people on the board wouldn't have? And they may, may not be the ones that you're doing in your paid job, they may be some things that you've gathered from previous experiences, but draw up a, a kind of CV that is a more comprehensive version of you about your skills and passions and not just job titles. And I suppose the, the last is don't be humble in saying to an organization, I think you need me and you need my insights and here's why. It's a bit like speed dating. It feels really odd. You've got to make a good impression. But the last thing that people want is, is to see people who look exactly like them. I'm a great believer that if you recruit a monocultural board, you get monocultural thinking. And the best thing that an organization can do is to have both a senior management team and a workforce and a board that doesn't look like you. And by doesn't look like you, doesn't look like me, actually, white and male and middle class and 51. The more diverse that you can get, the better your thinking and strategies and organisation. So we're going to come up to our last topic now. Let's talk about being the Mayor of London's Ambassador for Cultural Tourism. Because for most, if not for all of us listening to this podcast, the concept of being in the mayor's office is a very, very alien concept. Could you open the door and let us in just for a little bit and share with us what has been the most interesting conversation you've been part of in that room? Well, the first thing is that the current mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, is the first to have prioritised culture as one of his top three political priorities. And I mean, that's unheard of. And one of the things that he did, therefore, was to create a mayor's cultural leadership board. So there are about 20 of us. 
and we come from all different parts of culture, arts and creative industries. So there's someone who champions the gaming industry, someone uh, theatre, someone in terms of education, Sharon Amont, who's the director of the Museum of London, is on there. And I've got responsibility for, for cultural tourism, largely as a result of Alva's members. It's a fantastically brilliant, engaged board. And it's one of those boards, and I'm, I'm not being humble here, it's one of those boards and you look around the room and you think, wow, how did I get here? Because in every meeting, in every conversation, you're soaking up uh, intelligence and insights and experience from other people around you. And it's, it's like a sit down, fantastic TED talk for two hours each meeting. And we advise the mayor on everything from creating a London Borough of Culture, which has been a phenomenal success, through to creative enterprise zones uh, and establishing those where small businesses in, in culture and the arts and the creative industries can survive and thrive, often at low rents. In terms of the most extraordinary conversations, I think it has been those during the coronavirus pandemic, where we know that the number one reason for overseas visitors to come to the UK is our culture and heritage and traditions. Uh, we also know that 50% of all overseas visitors to the UK only come to London, and 51% of all overseas visitor spending in Britain is in London. So if we lose that market, we're in trouble. And if we lose the domestic market coming to visitor attractions in London, we're in trouble too, economically. But there's also a greater imperative, which is we want to ensure that all Londoners have access to visitor attractions, to their own cultural property that they are entitled to. Uh, and I'll just give you one more example, if I may, which is in London, we have the borough with the largest cultural uptake of any in the UK, and that's Westminster and Chelsea, and the borough with the lowest cultural consumption, terrible phrase, lowest cultural consumption of any in the UK, and that's Barking and Dagenham, in the same city, 17 miles apart. How do we address ourselves to that inequality of access to culture? So I suppose that for me has been a a hugely important element of the conversation and one that obviously we haven't we haven't found a, a, a brilliant solution to yet. Right, so you as Bernard, what do you like to do when you're not working, if that ever happens? I, well, I love theatre, um, so that's part of the reason that I'm chair of London's Theatre Festival, so I would probably go to the theatre at least once a week. I do go to lots of visitor attractions and museums and galleries. It's how I spend it's also how I spend my money. I meet up with loads of friends. I'm lucky that my partner is a brilliant gardener and we have a great garden. He's also a brilliant cook, so I eat well. I'm conscious at the moment I'm sounding really smug. So yeah, theatre, going out to museums and galleries and, uh, and enjoying life with friends. And can you recommend a book, a website, a podcast, anything for us to keep our minds fresh? I've just started Hilary Mantel's third book, The Mirror and the Light. It's huge, so I'm, I'm bracing myself to, to throw myself into that. I actually, I'm, I actually love Twitter. I, um, it can be annoying and horrible in a dark place sometimes, but actually there's a lot of light and joy and interests and 
you know, sort of rabbit holes that take you in a whole different direction that you wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have thought of. So I, I do oddly like that. Along with Tiger King on Netflix, it's probably my indulgent hobby. Three questions to bring our podcast to an end. What mistake or mistakes do you often see others making in our industry that you always think, we have got to stop doing that? Talking down the value and the importance of the cultural sector and often focusing on negativity rather than positivity. I suppose a a second is seeing people cosily, lazily inhabiting their comfort zone. So if as a museum director or a gallery director, you're comfortable in seeing a 5% increase year on year of the same kind of people coming through the door, I'm not sure you're in the right job. Uh, Because actually the role should be, sure, sustainable growth, but allowing your place to be visited by people who don't traditionally come. Uh, And to ensure that you are as... Uh, rooted and as accessible and open to the community in which you're housed as you can possibly be. So getting out of your comfort zone. I suppose the, the third is when people are not generous in giving advice or breaks or opportunities to others. There is that phenomena of, you know, climbing up the career ladder and then forgetting to help the people behind you. Uh, and that's not kind and that's not generous it's also pretty stupid so what piece of advice would you give someone in the beginning of their career wanting to be in a leadership role such as yours one day network yourself madly and I know that sounds slightly odd but when I think about the jobs that I was doing when I was 2021 of course everyone grows pretty much at the same time as you so there are now about five or six of my mates we were all Uh, lobbyists together so I was a parliamentary officer a campaigner for a disability charity called Sense uh, working with people who are both deaf and blind and have multiple disabilities so there was a load of us together someone worked for the RNIB someone for the RNID someone for Scope and we would go to all the party conferences and we got to know each other really really well well about five of those people including me are now chief execs of big organizations so network right at the start of your career because your peers and colleagues will grow with you uh, and at some point they will be in big interesting roles in big interesting organizations and you'll need that kind of support network just to bounce ideas off and you know be able to phone them up and say I'm thinking about doing this have you ever tried it you know what's your what's your best advice so network don't be humble in your ambitions everything is is conceivable and possible and don't be afraid to ask for advice even though you think you might get turned down or snubbed because actually the likelihood is you probably won't be because people do remember when they asked for advice and someone was generous uh, and they'd probably like to repeat that now the final question describe the ideal top leader in three words a clear communicator collaborative and inclusive. Bernard, thank you so much for your honest answers, your advice. I've literally taken so many notes. My room is filled with post-it notes. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. So thank you for listening. I hope you have enjoyed my conversation with Bernard as much as I have. 
the top three things I have taken from this podcast today are walk the talk, think for yourself, but act for others and bring your authentic self to your job. Let us know what you thought and any feedback. Send it to info at culturalenterprises.org.uk. We would love to hear from you. And the Culture Enterprises podcast is available on all of your streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Make sure you subscribe today. And join me next time as I chat to another top sector leader. I'll see you then.